You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery, and we are on... What, 13 days in a row now of an episode? I'm pretty pretty glad about all this. I will be completely honest because that's what I do here. Transparency and honesty. It's my thing. That's the non-malfeasance in me too, or is it fidelity? It's both. And there's some beneficence in it. My brain just got done putting together a 3,800-word essay on the ethical and legal implications of counseling, self-care, advocacy, and a whole slew of other things. Um, Thankfully, the professor gave us permission to go over the allotted 2,200 words. I do not think, even though he responded to me in my emails to him, that it was okay to be nearing 4,000 words. I don't think he's going to be thrilled when it's a reality sitting in front of him. Um, 21 references. I won't do that to myself again. It was out of control. But by the time I got it written and went back to edit it down, my brain literally was just, it's like, this is all necessary to move it forward. Uh, which goes to say something for the fact that it's like once you get it out of your head and it becomes tangible, it's like your brain thinks it's needed. It's necessary. It's, oh, this is important. When I'm sure if I were to sit back down and rewrite this whole thing fresh and not have it all down on paper, I would more than likely write it very differently and probably with a substantial amount of brevity and succinctness added to it now that I've spent 30 hours of my life for a 130 points assignment. So (laughs) I don't think the cost-benefit analysis on that works out very well. And it got me to thinking about how yesterday we were talking about the unknown of change is why you stay the same. We get comfortable in the unknown. or Yeah, we get comfortable with the known outcome. And so we don't want to get uncomfortable with the unknown outcome. So we get that unconscious kickback push back against the goal that we have set for ourselves. And regardless of how great we know we'll feel, at least how much we elicit the feelings of what it would be like to accomplish that goal inside of ourselves, to take multiple steps forward and and continue that momentum uh, becomes difficult when our brains are hardwired to seek pleasure over pain and fear is a form of pain. So if we fear the unknown and we don't fear the known, even if the known is just a pile of stinking doohickey that we're so tired of standing in, the brain's just going to stay there because you know what? Where's the pleasure in the unknown if we're afraid of it? And if we're afraid of fear, again, why are we going to move toward it? And that's extremely important to really get into your head, is that if you're doomsdaying the idea of sobriety and recovery, if you're doomsdaying the idea of going through all of the work that it's going to take for that click, for that aha moment, for that pink cloud to carry you away for a period of time, If you're afraid of the amount of time it's going to take and the steps that are going to be involved, you're going to be getting pushback in your mind. And you're going to start playing the mental gymnastics. You're going to start doing the dance with the devil in your head. And if you're not playing it through to the credits and you're still romanticizing your addiction, as if that is actually a really good way of living your life, then you're going to at some point 
fall back in line with the way that your mind wants you to behave, which is going to be seeking the known. And so as we're discussing this further, one of my other gigs is I run the blogs and the podcasts for a company called American Contingency, which focuses on preparing people for man-made and natural disasters, these crisis moments that come up. And some of them are, you know, the black swan cataclysmic events, you know, hurricane rolls through, you know, uh, what was it? The Hurricane Andrew wiped out that one city pretty good back in the day. Uh, you know, there's, okay, let me reel it in. A black swan event in the preparation world is one of those extremely rare events with a severe impact. You would look at the 1994 Northridge earthquake. You would look at any of the hurricanes that you're familiar with, whether it be Katrina or Andrew or um, the one that got a hold of New York City. And you think about what those things are. There are these cataclysmic events that drastically shape lives. 9-11 would be one of those black swan events. We can over-manipulate our brain into thinking that seeking sobriety and recovery and what we're going to have to go through in order to achieve it is like one of these black swan events. We can doomsday it in our head over and over. And so as I was shooting the podcast with the um, man who runs American Contingency Today, we got into this conversation of black swan events, of disaster fatigue, herd mentality, resilience theory, mitigation strategies, chain of survival. And if you're trying to write these down, don't worry. We're getting ready to go over these because as I'm talking to him, I'm realizing that so many of these actually play a role in our day-to-day lives when it comes to seeking change within ourselves. And so I want to discuss this with you because it's fascinating when you're going to help somebody handle a crisis. And a crisis could be locking your keys in your car. A crisis could be running late to a job interview and turning down your favorite road to get to that destination. And there's a car accident on it and you don't know any other ways to navigate on it. In fact, you're stuck now. There's cars in front of you, behind you, and to your sides. You are locked in and you're freaking out, man. Yeah, you're freaking out, man, because the snozberries taste like snozberries. And so you don't know what to do in that moment. Your kid falls down, breaks their arm. You know, you don't have your cell phone on you, so you can't call the hospital or you can't call your spouse. You can't call somebody to come help you. These are the daily crisis moments that actually show show up in our lives, not earthquakes and tornadoes and 9-11s. Those are the rarefied air of events that, you know, again, dramatically change lives, but they're not as normal. And what we want to do when we start to seek massive changes in our lives, or even just small ones, let's, let's, let me take the word massive out of that. Small change. You want to incorporate five minutes of meditation or five minutes of yoga or an extra thousand steps into your day. Like little tiny changes can be shifts in the pattern loop that you've created. And that alone can be enough to send your brain spiraling. Oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a thousand steps. Oh, well, what if I do five minutes today, but I can't do five minutes tomorrow? How much does five minutes really help anyways? Your brain starts screwing with you because it wants to stay in the known. And so when we start to think about um, disaster fatigue, herd mentality, resilience theory, mitigation strategies, and this chain of survival, 
Um, let me bring these in now. So this idea of chain of survival, it's a series of actions that when performed in sequence can maximize the chance of survival during a crisis event. I want you to look back, because I certainly can, at my chain of survival when I was on a bender, when I was going off and you know doing the Jesse thing. It would be a series of actions that when I performed them in a sequence could maximize my chance of survival. And when I think about that, it wasn't just the drinking. Because I mean, I knew I could black out and stumble my way home. I mean, I was in a race to the blackout and I was the only one in it and I did it a thousand times. But when I look at the chain of survival, I really pay attention to the way that I created a system to get over my hangovers. And some of these would be days, weeks in order to get over them. And I would create this entire pattern of behavior that I knew if I did these four things on the first day and then these five things on day two and then these three things on day three. And I had a whole system and I did it so many times that it became muscle memory. It became a pattern loop. But what's really interesting is that when we go to actually make really cool changes in our lives, we don't follow a similar pattern. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that laying in bed and shaking for three hours is the step I want to take whenever I want to make a change in my life today, but I'm saying the way that we lay out changes in our life now, the patterns we begin to establish, we don't put as much attention toward them as we did when we had a chain of survival to get our drug of choice, when we had our chain of survival going to get our alcohol in our hands, when we had our chain of survival to get that person in front of us, or chain of survival to overcome the hangover or to make amends to the people around us who we pissed off while we were blacked out for four days. We had a system for that. But for some reason, we want to push against creating a system in our sobriety and recovery. When the human brain loves systems, it loves strategies, it loves habits. So when you go to start to seek this movement out of addiction and into sobriety and then down the line into long-term recovery, think of it as how can you put as much importance on your sobriety and recovery that it becomes a chain of survival for you, that you can perform certain actions in a sequence to maximize the chance that your sobriety and recovery survives whatever you're going through right now. Create a chain of survival. What is that going to be like for you? That's going to be up to you to figure out. But this is where we can bring in mitigation strategies. When we take efforts to reduce or eliminate risks in our life, this can prepare us for potentialities of destruction. Right? We want to take efforts to reduce or eliminate risk in our lives that can invite elements of destruction into our life. What mitigation strategies do you have if you're around friends and they pull out some cocaine? What mitigation strategies do you have if you're walking down the street and you see somebody in the alley smoking crack? What mitigation strategies do you have in place if you drive past your favorite gas station that you know you can get some Kratom in? What mitigation strategies do you have in place if the family comes over for the holidays and some of them bring over your favorite booze of choice? We want to have certain things that we've put in place to reduce or eliminate the risk of these destructive things showing up in our lives, being introduced to us, or simply for us to to feel like that's an answer in the moment. See, at some point, it will click for you. It will. It clicks for everybody. 
where it's just like, holy shit, this is it. This is the clarity I've been seeking. And whether it's called the pink cloud or whatever terminology people want to dub it with, the fact is, is that at some point it will click and being sober and enjoying the clarity that comes from that will be way more enjoyable than the idea of even going back, let alone the action of consuming. And I've been told that the pink cloud is a horrible thing to fall off of. I also think that that's a mindset choice. And again, I don't want to just be crass because I know some people have gone through some really, really bad pink cloud falls. But if you're seeking to create a life worth living and enjoying and experiencing through clear eyes and clear mind and a clear heart, then you'll find something enjoyable. And yes, will there be some level of, you know, I'm not going to say depression because that's got a little bit more of a stigmatized connotation to it. When we think of depression, it might be in a dark room underneath the covers in the middle of the day, but there would just be a depressed feeling or a depressed level. Like if you're on this magical mystery carpet ride and that's the pink cloud, because that's what I've always pictured it. Like it's one of those Aladdin type flying carpets and you know, it's up in the stratosphere and instead it just comes down to the cumulus clouds. I'm pretty sure that's how the clouds go, is a cumulus nimbus stratospheric. Anyways, uh, we're not meteorologists. We don't need to worry about where the clouds are. Just let's go with stratospheric being really high up and cumulus being really low. So <laughs> you will come down, but you're not crashing back down to the ground, let alone falling into the pit of despair. So you you've put together this chain of survival where you start to gather up a sequence of behaviors that can allow your sobriety and recovery to survival in those really hardcore craving moments. You've developed mitigation strategies, efforts that you can take to eliminate the risk of being introduced, having it around you, or just being triggered by it. And if that means telling anybody who comes over to your house for a while that they can't bring over any booze, then so be it. If those people ain't down with that, then those people aren't down with you and you need to excommunicate them from your life. And then we can move over to resilience theory. A resilience theory is this concept that focuses on why some individuals or communities can recover from traumatic events more quickly or effectively. Now, why is it that some people have more resilience than others? It could be because they've gone through some shit that has dropped them down into the bowels of the of just disgrace or despair. It could be. It could be that they've watched other people sink down to those depths and they've just decided that they don't want to do it. I certainly have plenty of people who are like, dude, I just used you as my threshold. If I saw you doing something, I knew I needed to stop about 10 10 steps before or 10 minutes before. I knew if I saw you going crazy, it might be my opportunity to go home. They can build up their resilience without necessarily going and scraping themselves along the barnacles of the bottom of the boat. It is something that other people put together in their own unique way, and you're going to put it together in your own unique way. But when you start to think of these mitigation strategies and the efforts you will take to eliminate the risk of going back to using, there's going to be this resiliency that will begin to grow inside of you, even if you only go five minutes, if you choose to experience those five minutes as growth. If you don't, and you're just like, whatever, I just went five more minutes, I'm going to tell you right now that five more pounds of a bicep curl each week 
would dictate that if I started at 20, that in 12 weeks, I'd be at 80 pounds. That's a lot. And I don't think it's possible. I have tried to move up that quickly with a lot of momentum, but it doesn't feel good. You certainly could bicep curl an 80 pound dumbbell, but is it safe? No. Is it going to actually lead to the kind of growth I want? No. Is it sustainable? No. So we're not looking for five pounds of growth every single week. It's just the consistency of it. And if I can go from 20 to 22 and a half to 25 and I can manage that leap maintaining form over two, three, four weeks, that's a freaking win. Now, somebody else over here who's got, you know, my legs as their arms, they might mock me for only be doing, you know, 25 pound dumbbell, but it is what it is, man. I, I do me, you do you. Your resilience is your resilience and mine is mine. And I want you to focus on the ways you've shown yourself resiliency in the past because we've battled through some shit. We've lost jobs when we needed them. We've gone broke when we definitely needed money. We've run out of alcohol and drugs right at the worst time, which is like any time that we're on a bender, but let alone, you know, like when our car's out of gas and our bank account's empty and there's no food in the house and all of our neighbors have stopped answering the knocks on the door because they don't want to share their shit with us anymore, right? Like we've gone through some stuff. We've developed resiliency. Let's move the resiliency that we developed in our addiction over into our sobriety and recovery. Let's realize that no matter what the world throws at us, we're survivors, man. We'll figure it out. We figure things out. Now I want to move us over to disaster fatigue. And this is a form of emotional or mental exhaustion that can occur when people are exposed to prolonged periods of stress during a disaster. We could literally be experiencing our current lives. You could be, in this moment, experiencing your current life as a disaster. Shit could be hitting the fan all over the freaking place. And you're like, oh my goodness. I'm just like, this is just, I'm I'm dive bombing here. (laughs) It's like the Hindenburg and the Titanic happening at the same time. You know, it's like, it's all going down in flames or to the, you know, the, the ice cold bottom of the deep, deep ocean. You could be experiencing that. And when this disaster fatigue kicks in, We have this emotional and mental and spiritual and physical exhaustion that takes over. And what is the mind and body and spirit going to do when it feels this level of fatigue? It's going to go back to the known. It's going to want to go back to the cigarettes. It's going to go back to the booze. It's going to want to go back to the kratom and the crack and the coke and the meth. It's going to want to go back to the things that it knows because it's exhausted. The key thing here is going back to the resiliency. One, I want you to really start to look around. And instead of labeling things as a disaster or a shit show or chaos, I want you to put a different word on it. It's not a lie to reframe it a different way for yourself. It's merely a challenge that life is presenting to you to measure your resiliency, to see if you've developed mitigation strategies. And if you're feeling good with your chain of survival, or if you want to begin to, let's say, manipulate it so that it brings you to a more desirable outcome. Disaster fatigue is something that we choose to experience because we're choosing to experience the things that are going on around us as stress and anxiety. I live at a very high level of anxiety and stress. In fact, I was meeting with one of the tribal members today for a session, and we both live it's just sort of like a seven or an eight. And I think a lot of people in this day and age have just gotten very comfortable with anxiety and stress. 
right? We get, we're stressing out about our bills. We're stressing out about our future. We're stressing about our sobriety and recovery. And then we have anxiety about what we're going to do in the future. Anxiety, what about I should do right now? Hell, I might even have some anxiety about the next two sentences that come out of my mouth. Either way, there is a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety that we're putting on ourselves. And then we're expecting other people to judge us. So then we're putting anxiety and stress on ourselves that way. We might even be judging other people. Now we're putting stress and anxiety upon ourselves that way. Our work and our school and our lives we are all built up around this go, go, go. Americans got to work, 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 work. Never stop working. Have four jobs, five jobs, six jobs. Be like that Jamaican family in the TV show in Living Color. I got 13 jobs, man. And the dad's like, you're lazy, man. I got 17 jobs. I'm like... It's the funniest skit. Go find it on YouTube or somewhere. In Living Color, Jamaican Family. It was like the Waynes brothers playing all the characters. It's a hoot. But it's like that's the American way, right? To just drive ourselves into the ground. What? There's still a modicum of life left in me? Then let's spend it working on the machine. We need to begin to shift ourselves away from this consistent stress and anxiety and start following something different. And now I'm going to close up on herd mentality. That's this inclination for individuals to follow a group just because that's what everybody else is fucking doing. That's what we did. That's what we were doing back in the day. Somebody came up to us and said, hey, man, seeing that you're not very happy right now, uh, I've got the answer. And they pull out this magical thing that we never knew was the answer. But this moment we smoked it or drank it or toked it or snorted it or shot it or shooted it or whatever the hell the new terminology is, it was like on like Donkey Kong. And I'm telling you, the herd mentality, it takes us down paths that are well-worn. Oftentimes, right over a cliff, it's, I'm picturing the zombies from The Walking Dead when they're all like, and they're just following each other off of a bridge or off of a cliff down into a ravine. It's like, brains, brains. And it's like, great, congratulations. Now you're in the ravine with the rest of the morons. When this disaster fatigue comes in and the stress and anxiety and we go back to the way things have always been, we are just following the herd. And in some cases, the herd is just the last 1,000 days that we did this behavior. We are our own herd. We are our own herd following the same old path that we have been trudging along sick and tired of being on, but too afraid to step off of it because we have no idea what's in the tall grass. It could be a coyote. It could be a bear. It could be a snake. Or it also could be a new path over to a wondrous land that we'll never have an opportunity to even begin to experience if we don't take the first step off of the path we know. Release the herd mentality of following yourself and what you've done the last thousand or whatever number days and begin to form a new path. Realize this disaster fatigue that you have, this thinking that there's going to be stress and anxiety or overwhelm or confusion or frustration. These are freaking great things to feel sometimes. Confusion, frustration, overwhelm, it's the sign your brain is experiencing something new. It's not a disaster. It's inspiration. It's adrenaline. It's jubilation. Disaster is a label we put on something because it just seems like everything around us is wrecked. That's what you have been living. Sobriety recovery isn't a disaster. It is the ultimate embracing of that little inner child and saying, it's going to be okay. I'm sorry what happened to you, but I love you right now. 
here, hold my hand. Let's move forward. This resiliency that you've shown in other areas of your life, move it into your sobriety and recovery. Develop mitigation strategies so that you can eliminate the risk of your drug of choice or your booze of choice showing up in front of you, of, of feeling the craving become so overwhelming that you would charge through a room full of rattlesnakes in order to get to it. Come up with some strategies that can mitigate the circumstances that could lead you back and then begin to develop a new chain of survival. But instead of that chain of survival being how you're going to overcome the hangover or how you're going to survive another three hours at work until you can get your drugs and alcohol back in your system, I want you to develop a chain of survival that maintains your sobriety and recovery. Let that be the most important thing that survives every single day. Some of my days can go to hell. I can literally just look around me and I'm, it's like... <laughs> I want to I wanna spew positivity all over it. Shout out to the tribe today because we were talking about that meme where the dog's drinking the coffee and this whole house is on fire and underneath it, the, the subtitle reads, everything is fine. I will literally try to spit that kind of sunshine on the, on, on the shittiest of days. But there's some days where you, no matter how much you try to shine the turd, it just is the turd. There is going to be days that suck, but that is not sobriety. That's just life sometimes. Develop a chain of survival that gets you to the end of the day so that your head hits the pillow and you can enjoy that sweet, sweet, sweet sunrise sober. I'm telling you, I don't close the show by saying every day is the best day of our lives when we wake up sober just because I'm trying to send some positive you know, mantra your way. And it is a positive mantra, but there's depth to it. And I want you to embrace that depth. If you want to know more about joining the tribe and being a part of the meeting like we had tonight, go to jessemogel.com slash ask me, click on the coaching link, fill out one of those Google forms. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to conversate with you. I've got a whole online academy that teaches you this stuff. I'm developing a whole brand new portion that's going to come out in the spring. If you'd like to know more about that, jessemogel.com forward slash ask me, fill out the Google form and I will meet you. As always, my friends, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the best day of our lives when we wake up sober, because we wake up sober. Shout out to Sunshine and Robert. Glow on. And I didn't even mention that today is episode 250. Oh, hells to the yeah. We'll cover that tomorrow. Much love, everybody. Bye-bye. 